This is a lesson about uh, the product, the end result of redemption, which is a home in heaven. Because we are redeemed, we get to go home. This lesson is about heaven. And I discovered this morning in teaching the Genesis class that while that may be the English word, it is God who named it. See Genesis chapter 1. This lesson was inspired by a song that was made into a movie which opened last weekend. So my departure point is Hollywood and in the world of contemporary Christian music. But it was informed, this lesson was, by a great study by Brother Wayne Jackson, who gets this information from Scripture. So I'm not original in anything I say today, but I do hope that it's meaningful to you. It was meaningful to me as I put this lesson together. It starts with, I can only imagine. These are the not inspired in the sense that they are not a quotation directly from the word of God, but they are the title and they are the main refrain of a song that has become very popular in the last 17 years. This lesson ends with inspired words of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14 that were read a minute ago, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The band's called Mercy Me, but actually it's his lead singer that's the main songwriter for the reason, reason for their success, financial and musical success. It dates back about 17 years ago. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, but uh, since 2001, it is known and has been renowned again because the movie is the best-selling single of all time, in particular in the generic area of contemporary Christian music. That is a recent genre, hasn't been around for a long time. It's only been around for a few decades, but it has made a, an appearance, a splash. And I think I've mentioned before, while there are issues with instrumental accompaniment to praise music, there's an issue with that. That said, it has uh, been also a blessing in the sense that at least it's good alternatives to some of the, well, trash that's on the music waves. I'm not talking about the melodies or the beat. I'm talking about the words, I'm talking about the lyrics. It's a welcome alternative in some ways. It won the Dove Award back in 2002, and even more so it won Song of the Year among pop music, and it made it number five among adult contemporary. So it was a crossover, as they called it. It went from contemporary Christian to those that don't buy into that most of the time, and that was remarkable. And that was noteworthy. And the news items said, what's going on here? And that's kind of been happening for the last 18 years. I'm not all down about our time. There are certain aspects that are maybe sometimes good. So the movie tells the story of how the song came to be, the lyrics, of course. The melody is beautiful, the accompaniments too, but it's all about the lyrics, really. I can only imagine. It's about the story of the fact that the words were written in 10 minutes. 
That's how fast some creative people can do things that make a gigantic splash within our culture. But the really, the story was written over a lifetime, that of his and that of his dad's and their relationship, which was not good from the beginning. You see, the song, what's behind and between the lines of the lyrics of the song is a story of physical and verbal abuse, of redemption, and of heaven. That's what the lyrics are really all about. Hollywood Reporter came out this week with Amazed. The movie about the story, about the song that was so big 17 years ago, still being played significantly, made $17 million last weekend in our movie theaters, and I don't know what it did this weekend. It'll probably be less, but still. You see, the genre of faith-based movies only grossed about $200 million once upon a time. The 90s were a bad decade. <laughs> there weren't very many. Something like 16 at the most. And, and then suddenly, at the turn of 2000, some say that it was September 11th, that a lot of people turned back to prayer, and they turned back also to faith-based themes after we were attacked on our own soil. I don't know if that's true. If it's so, it didn't last very long. People have turned away from prayer again, it seems to me, but maybe not. I hope not. But movies have continued to rise, and this year there's an extravaganza of movies. Now, you can't always trust Hollywood. Watch out. They take liberties. They don't believe in inspiration for the most, so they take liberties with stories. There's one coming out of Paul. I want to see it. He's one of my favorite heroes of the Christian faith. I want to see what the movie do, makers do with the figure of Luke, who is with Paul in Rome at the end of his career, right before he's executed. See the letter of Second Timothy, right? In the year 65 AD, approximately. You have to make up some of the conversations, but do you stick with what we do know from inspired and protected word of God? That's the question. The income from faith-based movies now has grown to $5 billion, from $200 million to $5 billion. So it's uh, Hollywood goes where movies are, where money is. So they're not always sincere. Their sincerity lies tragically with the bottom line many times, but uh, I welcome. So I went and saw it last Wednesday with my wife, and it was encouraging. And uh, it's about heaven, and that is so curious. Why would this society, why would our times be interested in a song about heaven? Why on earth? It's an interesting, in my opinion, anomaly. Maybe you can agree or disagree, but we live in an intensely secularist, growing secular society where most humans, if not many, are turning their back on God, are saying, I don't need him, I don't need his story, I don't need his instructions, I don't need his heaven or his hell, I don't need either one. And yet, the movie surprised Hollywood Reporter in that it grossed enough to make a note. And it's about a reunion in heaven because that's what the line is between the lines, between the lyrics. It's curious, it seems to me. It's a paradox. We seem, as I look at what humanity and Western culture in particular has been about most of the time, we seem more interested in hell than we are in heaven. That seems to be the case, at least in my uh, knowledge. Maybe I 
don't know it all, that's just a joke. But it seems to me we're interested in the dark side. We make a lot more movies about the dark side. In the 14th century, there was a great piece of literature written in not Latin, but original Italian vernacular by a guy named Dante Alighieri, and it's called The Divine Comedy. And it was not a book of theology, but it was divided into three worlds, as my Catholic friends would believe it. It's not in scripture, but that would be hell, purgatory, and heaven. And it was an attempt to describe the afterlife in some way or form. And what the author, Dante Alighieri, wanted the readers of his time in the 14th century, he's a storyteller, you see, was to want to get to chapter 3. It's divided actually into 100 chapters, but it's three segments, three worlds. It's hell, it's purgatory, and it's heaven. He wants the reader to get to heaven. But most people get stuck in hell. And over the last 600 years, most readers don't get past hell. Hell seems to be more interesting. Heaven is esoteric, it's strange. It seems like we don't know that much about it, so we know a lot more about hell. And how interesting that a modern-day theologian by the name of William Shedd, who wrote a, a work of dogmatic theology. This is not uh, literature, uh, made-up literature. This is theology based upon scripture, supposedly. He has two pages on heaven and 87 pages on hell. I'm not saying there should be less pages on hell. I'm saying it seems to me there should be more pages on heaven if that's where... We are, if we're in Christ, if we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, seems to me we should be talking about heaven. That should be the emphasis that we have. It is clear to me that this is something I can say from the very beginning. No one has ever been there and come back to tell about it. There are fictional stories of epic heroes who go into the underworld, the world of the dead, and come back. Those are in all the epic poems of ancient culture, but a story of somebody that goes to heaven and comes back. Now, that's not there. It's not even in scripture, of course. Just to mention a couple of instances where you and I might be tempted to say, okay, what's going on here? The apostle Paul mentions in one of his letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, he mentions and he talks about himself in the third person. I know a man who once, 14 years ago, he even tells you when in his life, he's about 47, it happened about in the year 37, 36, 34, I don't know, but somewhere about 14 years before, he says, had a vision, and I went into the third heaven, it says, but he tells you. I, didn't, I don't know if it's in my body or not. He says it twice. What he's trying to tell you is, it felt like I was going, going there with my body, but he says it was a vision. It was a, and he's trying to say, look, I had visions like that, and maybe you haven't, but I'm going to boast about my weaknesses, not about my visions. That's what the rest of the context says. But he, he says, I had a vision, and I was caught up into the heaven, and I heard things that I cannot express, not with human words, or human expressions. Of course, you may remember Stephen, too. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. He gives us great history lesson, and then he says, and you are just like your parents and grandparents, stubborn 
And when he says this condemnation against the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin, they start gnashing their teeth and they are angry. And especially when he looks up into the heaven and he's given right before he's led outside to be stoned to death right outside the city walls. He has a glimpse into the heavens. He gazed into the heavens, says Acts chapter 7 or 55, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's given a glimpse of where he's going before he's sent there by the angry mob that is the Jewish Sanhedrin. No one has ever visited heaven and returned to tell of the experience. Heaven is also called sometimes, there are many terms I chose not to go with all the terms of use, celestial realm. And there have been, however, bogus claims. One to mention is what our Adventist friends tragically espoused to because Ellen G. White said she went there and came back, but that's bogus. Nobody has ever been, not Paul, not Stephen, and not Ellen G. White. And what we remain with is this. There's so much that we can only imagine, but there is some that we can know. We can know about heaven, and all that we do know from heaven is not from an inspiring song or, or, or man-made literature, as poetic and as good as it may be, but it comes from Scripture with a capital S. Inspired, protected word of God. That's where you and I are going to find what we can know about heaven. <coughs> but of course, the number one question for 7.3 billion people here on earth, is heaven really there? Is it real? And there are at least three ways in which you can approach this very quickly. You can look at it from simply the logical point of view because for most people of those 7.3 billion people, starting quoting scripture on this will not do. So let's just look at it from a logical point of view just for a second. Really, there are only two possibilities after life. There is something there or there is not. There is non-existence or there is existence. There is or there is not. It's A or B. It's yes or no. It's not complicated. If it's there is nothing, A, non-existence, then you may argue, but it seems to me that this life that you and I are living is, is a mystery. Unfathomable means I can't figure it out. Why? Why must we suffer? Why must there be war? Why must we lose? You see, this life is an unfathomable mystery if there's no existence after life. It's like a senseless riddle that you can't make sense of. And by the way, there can be no enduring motivation for noble action. Why do good? Why do good to your fellow man? Why be generous? Why be kind? Unless there is a good God up there that created you and I to do good works. Why? Why not steal and cheat and lie? If there is nothing after this life, why be generous? Why? Non-existence, there is no life after this life, just doesn't make any sense. But so many choose it that way. The other option, of course, is B. There is something. 
And if there is something, then let me go ahead and say, if there is something, then it explains why most human beings, excuse me, all human beings have had in them embedded, not a blank slate, but a sense of oughtness, which means you ought not to do that. That is instructions embedded by God in your soul. We are not a blank slate. We have instructions within us. We can suppress them. We can fight them. We can ignore them. We have free will. And tragically, we can do that. One of the greatest trials of all of human history happened in the city of Athens, Greece in 399. I referred to it before because I'm, I'm intrigued by the pagan teacher slash philosopher by the name of Socrates. He took hemlock. It's a real death and a real life and a real trial. And it's all recorded by Plato, who was one of his disciples that cried when he was sentenced to death and he took the hemlock. And during his trial, he acts as his lawyer and he puts before them, they are threatening him, you need to shut up, you need to be quiet, stop teaching that stuff, we don't like what you're teaching. And he says, look, you're threatening me with capital punishment. You threaten me with that which, you, which of which you're scared of because you haven't figured out the question yet, the answer, is there life after death or not? If there is, are we responsible in the afterlife for that which we do here on this earth? He says, I'm good with the question and the answer. I can live with myself. You're the ones that have the problem. You haven't addressed the question. If there is life after death, then surely you know that you ought to, you ought to be behaving differently. You ought to be talking and living and doing things differently than what you're doing right now. Pascal was a French philosopher of the 17th century, and he said, influenced by a Christian context, of course, Socrates within a pagan context, which makes it so amazing. Pascal is in a Christian context, and he says this, it is certain that the mortality or immortality of the soul must make a difference to morality. If we are immortal, if there's a soul, if we transcend then how we behave, our modus, our morality, how we act does make a difference on our afterlife. But let's just keep the logic one more time. If there is something afterlife, there have to be two destinies. You can call them hell or you can call them heaven. You can call it whatever terms you want. You can soften them or you can beautify them, whatever you want. But there have to be, if there's life after death, two destinies. You see, if the future is entirely bad, if all of us are going to an afterlife that is bad, then what is the incentive here on earth to do good? On the inverse, if the future is entirely good, if everybody is going to be saved, if everybody's going to heaven, if everybody, no matter what they do, what they say, who they are, why, again, wouldn't you act wickedly if all of us are going to heaven? Those are questions that are not from Scripture, but from logic. It only makes sense that there's a heaven. And, of course, as there, there's a heaven, there's the opposite of that, too. But that's not what this lesson's about. Is heaven real? Here's the history of heaven in one quick slide. You see... All human cultures of all times have always believed that there was a superpower that ultimately was responsible for this universe and that 
is an innate idea of all cultures. There are no atheistic cultures ever in the history of mankind. We are the most secularized, believe there is no God culture ever to exist in the history of humanity. But like all cultures said there's something up there, all cultures always said too, like the Egyptians, for example, there's something after death, life after death. The Egyptians built 480-foot-high pyramids as tombs to their greatest leader, pharaohs, because it was the, the hinge between this life and the afterlife. That's why they built them like that. The Greco-Romans believed there was life after death, but they called them a gray area called the Elysian Fields. The Native Americans said, happy hunting grounds. Talking about a place over there where hunting would be good and better and easy. That was the euphemism for life after death. Let me bring us to something a little more reliable. Patriarchal times, wherever Job lived in third millennium before Christ or something like that. Dealing with, uh, now why exactly am I suffering? Why do we human beings have to suffer? He states very clearly, Job chapter 3 and verse 17, he comes to the conviction in the realm beyond death, there is life after death, where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. There is life after death and there are two different destinies, says patriarchal Job. Embedded in the ancient cultures and ancient writings is the fact that Oh, there are future rewards and there's future punishments. It's there. You can't take it out. Heaven. That's really the one I want to deal with. Is heaven real? The biblical side. The Bible is the piece of literature that contains the clearest and most certain arguments. Yes, there is a heaven. And you don't have to imagine everything. There are a few things you can know. What's interesting is that I found in Paul, haven't noticed it before, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, that in, in a sense implies, listen, if you're going to read the Bible, and you need to, the Old Testament may contain a few less things about heaven than the New, because, here it is, Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 1, life and immortality have been brought to life through the gospel. It's as if when the gospel, the good news, came to be, when Jesus was the last piece of the mosaic, the puzzle that was put together in the plan of salvation of God, that suddenly heaven became clearer. When that puzzle piece was put there, placed there, when the Son of God became man and came down to earth. But think, think back to the Old Testament. Abraham. This is quoted from the wonderful chapter of Hebrews, chapter 11, where a Jewish writer, Christian Jewish writer, looks back at the Jewish patriarchs. And of Abraham, he says, he looked to the, for the city that has the foundations, whose builder and maker is God. No, he's not talking about Ur, where Abraham was brought out of. And no, he's not talking about any city that he established in the promised land. He's talking about heaven. Abraham. Patriarchs are said in Hebrews chapter 11 to have died in faith, confessed that they were pilgrims. We're just a passing through here, passing through on the way to where? 
Heaven. That's where we're just passing through. They desired, the patriarch says, Hebrews 11, a better country. Better than what? Better than this one. Better than any country here on the face of this earth. A place that God, from, from Hebrews 11, prepared for them. A place that God prepared for them. Moses lived in the most beautiful city in the world. Are you kidding? Memphis, Egypt? Egypt was the greatest place to be on this planet but he forsook it. He left it behind. He chose the ill treatment of his own people as superior and better because he was looking forward to something better, the recompense of a home in heaven. Moses, he died and his physical body is buried somewhere in Jordan, across the Jordan River. But he was going home to a home in heaven. King David had a tragic moment of several in his life in which he lost his newborn son. He mourns him for seven days. That's a, an amazingly deep story. 2 Samuel chapter 12. But if you read that story, you'll find that it's pretty clear. David believed that he would see his deceased baby in a better place, a better place than this one here on earth. Jesus, of course, speaks left and right about heaven. Maybe that's what Paul meant in, in the letter to Timothy. It became even clearer because God came down to earth and he spoke of heaven. Matthew chapter 5 from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. There's this kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven begins here on earth, but it is culminated in life after death. The kingdom of heaven is here and, more importantly, there because it goes on to say, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets are dead, but heaven is their reward. Matthew chapter 6, still in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where mouth, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Lay up, store up for yourself a treasure in heaven. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus said, I promise, Terry, I promise, this is God making a promise. I'm preparing a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. We only understand things in spatial terms, so we understand rooms. How many rooms does that house have? So since you understand only rooms, I'm going to put it in your terms. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you and that I, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Of course, I know what my skeptic friends say. They say, well, there you go. You're quoting scripture now. I said, yeah, but first I quoted logic. Then I quoted history. 
I came to Scripture third because they all say the same thing, by the way. Just because the Bible says so, well, check out the Bible on other things, if you would. 66 books written by 44 authors over 1,500 years, and they all jive. Check out the rest of this book that you seem to dismiss so quickly. This book speaks of heaven. This book says Jesus, God promised. It's a pledge, and the pledge of heaven in the Bible only as good as the credibility of this ancient text itself. And since this ancient text is the most credible thing you're going to find on face of the earth, the pledge, the promise of heaven is true too. But let me listen the final part of the lesson. Just a few reasons why heaven is so dear to me, maybe to you. Why, why is heaven dear? Because we get the rest. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. John is the spokesperson for Jesus here, and he's for the Holy Spirit in this case. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them. You get to rest now. One of the opposite sides as I was considering this verse, because I was reveling in this one, you get to rest. He's not talking about physical rest, although sometimes we, we scream for that. Too much work. We're not meant to do some of the things we do. God created us and he embedded time and seven and the creation act. Before we were created, he created seven days, and he said, and you're going to rest like me on the seventh day. He created the Sabbath. He created rest. You're going to need it. But not just physical, it's spiritual too, spiritual rest. That's the one I yearn the most for, spiritual rest, because it seems like every morning we wake up, we're at war with a world that is with going against the grain of God and love, as Brother David talked about. They don't understand love. One cannot die in the Lord who has lived out of the Lord. You can't. Maybe sometimes we wish they could, but you can't. It's implied here by this verse. You can't die in the Lord unless you've lived out of the Lord. If you have lived out of the Lord, you can't do that. The two things don't go together. And by the way, rest is not just in a barca lounger with a drink. <laughs> That's a silly image. You have to earn it, do something with it. There's a sense of diligence that's implied in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. It says, strive, the Hebrew writer says, to enter the rest. He's comparing it to the rest that the children of Israel had when they finally got through 40 years of wandering and they finally got the promised land and rested. Strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall. You need to strive. Diligence is required. We get the rest. We also get the reward of reaping. Reaping. I'm not a farmer. Neither are you, probably. There are very few of us. But reaping is all throughout as an imagery of um, heaven. How interesting. In societies that were 90 to 95% agricultural, it doesn't surprise me. 
We're the first one in, you know, 5,000 years that are not agricultural for the most. But Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 and 8 says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. See here the terminology, the metaphor of planting and reaping. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. I love this agricultural motive that abounds in scripture connected with heaven. What about heaven? What can we know? What, what do we not have to imagine about heaven? Well, you're going to reap what you sow. Do you understand what that means? Number two. You're not going to get what you deserve. You're going to get more than what you deserve. You're going to get a hundredfold, sixtyfold, some of the numbers that Jesus uses in one of his parables. You're not going to get. With God on our side, our evangelism, our efforts are multiplied. You see, we're not alone. And it's also true that the home in heaven he's prepared for us is far beyond what we deserve. We don't. We don't deserve heaven. But by the way, you need to be patient. There are days when I'd like to go home now, today. Because it's just enough of the suffering and pain. Not personal, but maybe people near you and troubles and issues. But God says, like a sower needs to be patient, so do you. In due season, in due season, you will reap what you sow. I love heaven. It's so dear to me because it's the realm of righteousness. And I'll just start a list here and quickly call it to end, but you can complete the list. It's going to be a realm of absolute goodness. It's going to be continuously, forever. How do you understand that word? How do I understand that word, Terry? What does forever mean? I don't understand forever. But it's forever going to be Goodness. It's going to be inhabited, that world of heaven, by the Godhead. See Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. The angels are going to be there that have now rebelled to him, of course. Luke chapter 9, verse 26. And all the just who have been perfected by the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. I started trying to make a list. I couldn't get it all on slide, so I cut it. What's not going to be there? Because that's what, who's going to be there? There are going to be no prisons, no need for them. There's not going to be any police, not going to be any criminality. There's not going to be any opioids, no prostitution, no drugs, no pornography. There's not going to be any politics or fake news. Not going to be any demagogues trying to sell us something with fake promises. There will be no taxes. There'll also be no bills. There will be no discrimination. No poor, no rich. We're all going to be rich. No theft, no homeless. There will be no physical abuse. And this relates to the song, by the way. Physical or verbal, there will be no abuse in heaven. There will be no gossip. There will be no impatience. This is just the beginning of the list. What's not going to be there? Maybe sometimes that's the list. 
that attracts me most. It's a region of responsibility too, though. It's not just a place of recreation and retirement. I noticed this in one of the renditions, translations of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 3, part B, the second part of the verse, because it says, it gives you a picture of heaven, God on his throne. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, says the ESV. But maybe you have a version that says, will serve him. Worship is service. Service and worship are the same. It will be a place where we'll be happy, joyful labor. And yet we'll be rest. Maybe I'm reading too much. But I'm trying to see what I don't have to imagine because it's there in scripture about the place where I want to go, where I hope you will be, heaven. It will be a place where we're still going to be responsible and our free will will have allowed us to benefit from this great reward that God prepares for us. But one more, and the lesson's yours. It's a place of reunion and recognition. Maybe you're going to have to absorb this one, but uh, it seems to me that in Genesis chapter 25, verse 8, when it talks about the death of Abraham, it says, and he was gathered to his people. Now, you see, I know that that verse does not mean that he was buried in Ur because he wasn't. And his people were in Ur. His physical descendants were in Ur. And they, his physical descendants were not where he was buried in, in Palestine. So what does it mean when it says he was gathered to his people? Are we going to know each other in the heavens? Jacob says in Genesis chapter 37 that he anticipates going to his son, whom he believed to be dead, Joseph. He anticipates going in the afterlife and seeing his son. What does he mean by that? David, King David, expected to see his lost newborn son in the afterlife. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table of, here it is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of Haven. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three of the great patriarchs of Jewish history. Is Abraham going to recognize Jacob and Isaac? Do they, since they've already been dead for several centuries, if not thousands of years? When Moses and Elijah show up at the transfiguration of Jesus, Matthew chapter 17, how does that play out? Do they know each other? It seems to me there's an implied recognition in heaven. There's being no marriage. I know that. won't be necessary. I think there's an implication. Some of these, there's an inkling about awareness Awareness and recognition in heaven. I don't know what you think of that, but I think yes. Yes. We will recognize each other. But of course not the physical. It'll be the personality that you have. Unique. It's not the body that Christ dies for. It's the spirit. And it's unique. There's only one of you. There's only one of me. Some 
I found when I addressed this question asking, okay, how am I going to be happy in heaven if there are not some of the loved ones that I've known that are, don't make it and are not there? How am I going to be happy there? And here's a quick three-pronged answer to that. How can I be happy in heaven if some of my loved ones are not there? First of all, Revelation 7 verse 17, God will wipe away all tears. You've got to stand on the knowledge that God will fix anything that seems to be a problem to us. And if that's not enough, then look at B. We may not view in the afterlife those that were down here on earth that we cut slack to, felt sorry for, whatever it was. We may view them in a different light because when we're over there, we will see things from God's perspective. And thirdly, Jesus is the one among all of us that had the greatest love for mankind because he died for us. He died. And if Jesus, who had greater love for humanity than you and I, can be happy, the word is machadios, blessed, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, then we should be confident that the joy of heaven will eclipse any and all sadness of this life remembrances. So it's going to take care of itself because it's heaven. Because he said so. That's why. Bart Millard wrote this. The first time he actually performed it was in 1999, but it was made big in 2001. 2.5 million sold to this point. That's double platinum. This is not inspired, so I'm shifting. But it's inspiring. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. I can only imagine when that day comes, when I find myself standing in the sun. I can only imagine when all I would do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine. Those are the two stanzas in which that which follows next is the, the chorus. But by the way, please read between the lines what is the backdrop to these lyrics. He had just spent months seeing his father die, and his father had come away from abuse to restored relationship, redemption. And so he was saying, in between the lines, can't wait to get to heaven, because I think I'm going to see my dad there again, the dad that I saw in the last few months. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Mr. Bart is yearning for redemption, for reunification with his father in a place called heaven. What Paul, inspired by God, said about that is this. You don't have to imagine. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. You can know. You can know. Heaven. This was a lesson about heaven. If you're in Christ, if you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, it's your home. 
to where you're going to go or just to pass them through. If you're not in Christ today, we want you to go with us. God sent his son just for you. Come, oh come. That's what we're going to sing. Let us stand and sing.